Uh, with that, I will give you uh, Dean from Philadelphia. Hello, I'm Dean. I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. I was asked to speak on step one, which is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I'll just tell my story. Um, I got to Marworth in Waverly, Pennsylvania on October 14, 1988, and it is a miracle that I've been sober every day since that day. Um, <clears throat> I was told there that I had a disease of feelings. I believe that. I, 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 I've never forgotten those words. In my youth, well, I learned, I learned how to make adjustments for my feelings. So I learned that when I was angry, I wasn't allowed to express it, so I learned to be quiet and, and hold it in myself and smile. And when I was sad or scared or hurt, I learned not to cry. And I, I learned that I would be reprimanded if I cried, you sissy, you baby. I, so I learned to breathe slowly and hold that in. Um, I learned to be a quiet person, and actually I became very comfortable with that all of my life, until I got into recovery. I learned to listen to music and sit with my bellow constrictors in my bedroom, and <clears throat> so I, I always felt very uncomfortable with, with, the, with the public, with the world. I was very uncomfortable in my own skin, actually. Um, the first time I poured myself a drink, I was 12 years old on New Year's Eve, and um, I didn't really like the taste, but I kept pouring it. A bunch of friends of mine had confiscated some alcohol, and I just kept drinking it until, until I couldn't drink anymore, and until I blacked out. Um, and I loved that feeling, but I was still, I, I was a good kid, and I, I didn't, I, 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 I didn't pursue alcohol for a long time after that. Um, I was a model student. I was well behaved. I smiled. I was polite. I was a gentleman. And um, but I, 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 I actually I hated myself in the world. I was very uncomfortable. When I got to college, I still hadn't interacted with women. I hadn't um, had any sexual adventures. Uh, I, I was very isolated. I lived in my room and I lived in the library. And I was interested. Some, I had a small circle of friends, and I was introduced to Quaaludes. And when I first took a Quaalude, I actually believed that I became a normal person. Uh, I, I'll never forget that feeling. But the feeling made me feel so comfortable with life. Uh, I loved it, and. I learned that actually there were Quaaludes doctors in West Philadelphia that I could get 30, a script for 30 Quaaludes. And it was important to me to get over my fear of doing something like that so that I could feel normal. And I went to, um, I started going to doctors' offices and bringing my textbooks and I'd look around this crowded waiting room filled with drug addicts. And, and, and it disgusted me to see the people around me um, 
Well, I was studying to be a doctor, and I felt entitled to be there. Um, my life, I, I was not powerless. I didn't feel powerless at this point. In fact, I remember um, one day I left the doctor's office with a prescription, and I drove down the block, and I was surrounded by police cars. I was a good, a good young man. I had never been interacted with police before, and I was surrounded by police cars with sirens a few blocks from his office, and they came to my car, and I couldn't breathe, and I'm holding a prescription in my pocket, and I, and, and I was starting to pray and thinking this can't be happening, and I will never, ever, ever be doing anything like this again. And the police came into my car and asked me questions, and I drove away shaking knowing I would never, ever get involved with anything like this again. And I went home and cried and laid in my bed, and, then, and, and by the next morning, I was over that, and I drove back into West Philly to fill the prescription and reward myself for two quaaludes instead of one. And um, uh, later on, I, 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 was, I was lustful after a woman, and, and I learned that, uh, and I had my first sexual experience by giving her a quaalude and myself. Uh, it was the first time I ever, well, first time I was ever able to take those whatever steps I felt I needed to take to be a man. And, um, and from that day to October 14, 1988, I had, never had, I had never had a sexual experience without quaaludes. They did dictate, well, without drugs, they dictated uh, my behavior and they dictated whether I had a good time and they dictated who I socialized with and, and how that went. Anyway, I got married towards the end of medical school and um, we went out to a wedding and I have no memory of, of, of being married. I was, uh, for me, the, 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 the most appropriate wedding gift was to snort cocaine. People brought me out to each of their cars and I would be snorting cocaine and taking quaaludes and, and, and when the, I just remember when the wedding was over, I remember walking into the, it was, it was a beautiful Saturday night affair, and I remember walking in and crying because I didn't know where everybody had gone. And I don't remember ever being there, and I look at the pictures and have no memory of being married. Um, in fact, I dropped the wedding ring. When I, when I was putting on my wife's finger, I, it was an outdoor wedding in October of 81, and it just fell into the leaves, and, and they had to stop the wedding, and everyone had to get up and rake the leaves. Uh, <laughs> And we did find the ring. And my wife's still wearing that ring today, 18 years later. Um, I went into an anesthesia residency at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. I learned a couple of things there that it proved to be very important to me. I learned, one thing I learned, shortly after I arrived, one of the nurses that was very flirtatious and, and asking me for favors showed me that I could order drugs from drug wholesalers. And she had asked me to order amphetamines for her because it helped keep her thin, which I was, uh, I thought that was abominable, the thought. But I never forgot what she taught me. She showed me the catalog. I was given a DEA number around that time, so I applied to the DEA for triplicate forms. And one day I got up the guts to fill out an order form from the drug wholesalers catalog that she had shown me. And I, and, I, and I went through it to, clearly to just become illegal right around then also. I think God was, was protecting me, actually. Um, but I went through the character because I wanted to find something that could accomplish the same quality of life for me. 
So I checked off. I, I went through most of the class twos and checked off tuinols and sequinols and bisetamines, dexedrine, uh, Percocet, and on and on and on. But, and, 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 a, and I ordered a carton of cocaine. I was shocked that that was in the catalog. <laughs> um, eight days later, I came back to my condominium on Pine Street in Philadelphia, and I, opened, and I came to the lobby, and I saw a carton sitting there, post-call, and, I, and, on, and the return address was Rugby Pharmaceuticals, and I took the carton up to my condo, my wife was at work, and I opened it up, and I saw the carton of cocaine and bottles and bottles of pills. And I knew God had blessed me that day. <laughs> um, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the next stage <laughs> of my life. Uh, I did extremely well in the residency. I got the job of my dreams. Uh, in fact, m my marriage was horrible. My marriage was revolved around drugs. My wife did drugs with me, and we'd go out clubbing. In fact, well, fidelity was irrelevant to me, but we'd go out clubbing and, and, and taking pills and cocaine and meeting other people. And um, uh, my wife lost two babies, miscarried twice at, at that time, and, and things were stressful. I got the job of my dreams at, in a rural area, very successful anesthesia practice, and. We had our first child there, and after he was born, and after my wife finished breastfeeding for six months or so, she said to me, let's party. And I was so happy. Um, I, I went ahead and ordered. I, I, I did what I had originally done, what I learned to do. I ordered everything in the catalog. And um, I couldn't find anything I loved. I took Percocet, and it made me a little nauseated. But I, I, I wanted to get to life some. I wanted to get comfortable again with life. So I took another purpose at the next day, and I kept repeating that until I felt comfortable with them. In fact, until I started to feel a little euphoria from them. And I started to take purpose when I was playing with my son, he was one or two years old. My days off, I was a wonderful father, and I would take a purpose or two, just like my father I had a scotch or two when I was a kid. And I felt good about that. I had rules. I would never, I would never take a pill at the hospital. I would never take a pill on call, etc. So it was a reward system I developed. The chairman of surgery asked me to give anesthesia to his closest friend, who was an end-stage COPD or who was an alcoholic. In fact, he sat at the bar with his oxygen tank and um, and drank, and he had to have his aortic aneurysm resected. And they asked me to do under epidural anesthesia, and and they heard I was good at it or I had shown myself to be good at it. And um, when I went in that day, I made a decision that the best thing for that patient, for his best friend, was for me to take four Percocets before I gave the anesthetic, because I knew in my heart that I was much more comfortable. And that's what I did. That was the first time I did Percocet and worked. And then I became, and that became a good reason to do them on a more regular basis. I went on a skiing trip to Vail, Colorado in, in 86, 7, 80, the winter of 80, well, early in 87. And I brought a bottle of 500 Percocets. And I remember taking, as a party type breakfast, I took uh, four with breakfast, four with lunch, four with dinner. And, and it was wonderful. 
Although, well, I remember coming home from Vail and, and feeling depressed, like I had done too many. I wasted them, and I, had, and I knew I, I, I was starting to want them on a more regular basis. Anyway, by the time I took my oral boards in anesthesia, which was in 1987, my biggest fear was taking the wrong dose. Um, and I chose eight Percocets at that time, and I, did, and I, and I passed the boards. I was more comfortable that way. Uh, my addiction progressed. By August of 1988, <clears throat> when I, at 5.07 a.m., I did 25 Percocets. And I couldn't get to my coffee break at 9 a.m. without doing 32 Percocets. And I knew that at 11 o'clock a.m. I had to eat lunch, but 20 minutes before lunch I had to do 35 Percocets. And in August, I was starting to get sick. So I knew I had a vomit before I did the Percocets because it was important for me to take them because if I didn't take them, the withdrawal was too severe. I mean, I, I, I was having chills. I was having stomach pains. I just felt sick, and, and, I, and I knew I needed to do it, so I would vomit. And, and by then, I was starting to vomit blood before lunch so that I could take my lunch dose. And then I took three more doses during the day. I was ordering 10,000 Percocets a month, hoping that I could get two or three of the thousand. But every day, when I woke up in the morning, I wrote three prescriptions, and I left them on my wife's armoire with three different names. I made up names, three names every day, and three different addresses. And we loved each other when she filled three scripts. And if she only filled one, there was a little tension. If she filled one, I was angry. Um, and that was because sometimes UPS didn't make their delivery on time. The DEA, I received a, a registered mail in August saying that they were concerned about the quantities of Percocet that I was um, receiving. And I cried for a day. I had now, I mean, this was the scariest thing that had ever happened to me to that day. And then I got a brilliant idea, like many of us get, and I ordered 10,000 pucker bands. I, I actually believe that would show up in a different file on their computer. But the day I got the pucker bands, and I took 32 or so pucker bands, I, I could have died. I, I, I don't know why I didn't die or why something... But I, I, the pain in my stomach from the aspirin was intolerable. I laid in the bathroom and cried and was in pain, and all I was scared of was going to my own emergency room and being found out, because I didn't want them to know how sick I was. I had ringing in my ears that was so intense. I, we had an exhaust, a, a, a industrial exhaust fan that I turned on. It was so loud, it was deafening you. And I couldn't hear the fan. And when I turned on this industrial fan, I couldn't hear anything. I just cried and prayed to God to relieve me of this sickness. I was scared to take another dose of the Percodan, and I had no more Percocet to take. But yet I kept taking small 15 and 25 pill doses of Percodan to get rid of the withdrawal symptoms, even though I was deaf and incapable of going to the hospital. And then God gave me a gift of another carton, another uh, shipment of Percocet. Anyway, on October 12, 1988, I was supervising three operating rooms at the hospital. 
I was laying in a call room at the time, and I got a phone call that the DEA agents are at my home. My wife called me and said, it finally happened. What happened? She said, someone wants to talk to you. It's their DEA agents. And, and, I, and I picked up the phone, and they, and they asked me you know, to state my name and so on. And I remember for the first time in my life saying, I have something to tell you. I'm a drug addict. It was the first time those words ever came out of my mouth. And she said, well, we have other ideas. And then she went ahead and read me my rights over the phone. You know, you have the right to remain silent, blah, blah, blah. And I was very confused. Anyway, I came home. I was scared. I reached out for help in whatever way I could, which was calling hospitals. And they were not saying what I wanted to hear. Places I was calling was saying, well, I was going to say, I know a drug addict, but the first thing you need to be sold, you need to, the, the person needs to be clean for 24 hours and then they can come here. And, and I knew I, I couldn't go two hours. And I didn't understand, and, and uh, I didn't know what to do. But the, I came home with the syringe of verse dead in Pavilion because I needed to prepare myself to go out. I really didn't, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Um, the DEA had taken my had revoked my, taken my DEA license away, and the other thing I learned in my residency was I had watched a resident have grand mal seizures in the operating room, and I watched him get kicked out, and I heard that he was addicted to Demerol, and I thought he was a disgusting human being at the time, and I heard subsequently that he had recovered and was doing well, and that was and it, on October fourteenth is when I remember, let, let me try to call Michael, Michael A. And I called him, and he answered the phone, and he, and he said to me, you don't have to feel this way anymore. He said, I can tell you what you need to do. And he gave me a phone number, which turned out to be the director of the PhD in New Jersey, David Canavan, who then called the Pennsylvania director. And, um, and they hooked me into to Dr. Bruce at Marworth on the phone. And that was the first time, and, I, and this physician that I was talking to over the phone was asking what was going on, and when I told him about my addiction, I told him, I, I, I didn't want to say the truth, I was saying you know, I was doing a lot, I was perfect, 10. I think I said I did 10. And he said, well, I did 100. <laughs> I felt so relieved that there was another human being that was as sick as me, because then I said, well, I did 200. <laughs> But I knew, right then, I knew my life could change and could get better. Because he was, it's okay, it's okay, you need to come here. We'll see what we can do. They sent someone to my home on October 14th, which was a good thing. Um, within three hours, I had someone at my home. My three-year-old was sleeping. They said I needed to go to rehab now. I had other knocks on the door. My mother-in-law came over. The, the state of Board of Medicine sent people to my home which is, it was interesting. They wanted to make sure that they, the DEA contacted me. They wanted to take my license physically. Um, and I, I ended up getting driven to Marworth. I was very concerned they wouldn't have enough Percocet there to wean me. And I was scared I would die there if they didn't. So I, I filled my pockets and socks with all my remaining pills. <laughs> and actually, I ended up doing all of them on the ride. And when they took my luggage and wanted to check it, I started to get scared. 
And I went into the bathroom and did 90 more pills in the bathroom, which was a shot in the dark. But the nurse with the white cap told me, said, Dean, uh, you need to sit down. And she started asking me questions. And, and that's when humility started, uh, humility started to sink in. The nurse was calling me Dean. I was a very big shot anesthesiologist at that time <laughs> in my other life. And, um, and I learned, I knew, I knew I was powerless over drugs. And I knew I was powerless over alcohol. They, 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 they taught me that I needed to take care of myself. And um, they taught me how to fake it till I make it. They taught me how to pray every day. And they taught me about the steps. Uh, they gave me hope at Marworth. I came home. I was blacked out at Marworth. I spent 31 days where I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. No phone calls. So I had no interaction with the outside world for 41 days. And on the 42nd day, I was allowed to con- I, I spoke to my wife, and she came to the rehab. And um, I went home on Thanksgiving of, of 1988. And it was just, you know, the, and that was um, <laughs> that was unbelievably uh, uh, severely painful experience to wake up in your own home and feel like you're walking on eggshells. I was so scared of living in my home without taking Percocet. My mouth was burning with desire. And if they were around, if my house hadn't been cleaned out by my parents, I know I would have taken them. If I had alcohol in my house, I know I would have drank it. But what I did do was I went to AA meetings three times a day, in the morning, afternoon, and night, um, because I didn't know how to live without pills or alcohol. I just didn't uh, It seemed like life was not real. And the only place I could feel peaceful with myself was in AA meetings. And in fact, I learned I could feel happiness and joy in AA. I couldn't conceive of feeling joy without drugs. And I was able to walk out of the meeting laughing and feeling good about myself. And at that point, my license to practice medicine was suspended. My DEA was revoked. The State Bureau of Narcotics was in touch with me. Uh, my hospital privileges, of course, were suspended. My partnership in a private corporation was dissolved. And I was, I had to go to these unemployment lines in Warminster. And, and I learned humility. I, I really, I just learned, I learned I could be happy despite all these situations in my life. It was scary. I was scared to death. And I felt bad for my family. And I felt shame. And I felt guilt. And I came home, and my wife let me know how she felt, and that made me go to more meetings. Um, but my life became manageable. I learned, I've learned how to how life can be manageable now, because it's not only not taking drugs and not drinking. I pray. I get on my knees and fold my hands and pray every morning. I read the big book and, and, and 12-step books every day. I don't go anywhere without my books. Lately, I've been calling my sponsor constantly. I go to AA meetings regularly. I try to help other people whenever I, I'm asked or feel that I could be helpful. My life can be manageable now if I work the steps. 
It's, it's, um, and when I deviate, it's not manageable. But generally, my life, life has, be, has become beyond my wildest dreams, which is what they promised. That's what they promised, and I, had, I was hopeless, and I had nothing else to hold on to. <clears throat> and I have a, a full and unrestricted license in the state of Pennsylvania, and the DEA gave me a certificate, which is unrestricted, which it took three years or four years, and I didn't mention the fact that the Department of Justice decided to make an example of me three to four years into sobriety. They wanted me in prison for 77,000 doses of Percocet and being the largest distributor on the East Coast of narcotics. And they wanted me to be a drug kingpin. I fell under the drug kingpin statute, and it was not fathomable to them that I didn't sell one single dose. And I was in federal court, criminal court, uh, for that purpose. And, and actually the issue was different. The issue became that my liver was so large and the issue became that, that, that I was doing 60 grams of Tylenol per day and that I, you, a human can't live with 60 grams a day. And I had to hire the director of the NIH hepatotoxicity program to say that he had found that there were rats. <laughs> that he had gotten to develop tolerance to Tylenol. And, and I just heard at this meeting that I was presented by him two years ago or a year ago, that there was a doctor, blah, 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 blah who had developed tolerance of that magnitude to Tylenol. And, and that had to be presented because they wanted to find proof that I didn't do those pills and that, that I had sold them. And I hadn't sold one. And, uh, and that was that's fortunate. But anyway, I, I wouldn't give one away to my mother. <laughs> And I could be honest about that in court, and I guess the judge felt that I was being honest because they didn't put me in prison. And I'm here today, and I, I um, and all of the criminal issues have resolved. And uh, in fact, the day they resolved, the day the criminal issues resolved, the CEO of, of my hospital asked me to be chairman of the department at my hospital, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And, and I, I've been involved with the physician's health program in Pennsylvania and I was given the privilege of being on the committee of the Physician's Health Program, and my life has progressed beyond my wildest dreams. So I'm, I'm very, extraordinarily honored to be here and, and speaking to you all. Um, so I will be back. Thanks for letting me share. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting him in uh, Gettysburg at a physician's health uh, program function. And uh, so one of those guys that you sit down with and you have an instant bond, you know, of uh, common purpose. He's just a warm, open human being, and I'm sure he's got a powerful message about step two. And uh, with that, I'll give you mic. Thanks. Enough for all my notes. So. Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Mike. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. I don't know how Stan taught me into this, but I'm going to try to get through it. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore us to sanity. I'm one of those people that wish you could say that it came like a thunderbolt, but it didn't. Uh, my experience with step two is more like the, we read about in the big book by William James, The Educational Variety. I just want to preface my remarks by saying that part of my understanding of my higher power today is that I don't completely understand him. Uh, 
I guess I'll tell you a little bit about my uh, youthful spiritual experience. And essentially, I was uh, raised a fairly typical typical Christian. I went to church, was taught about Jesus. The problem that developed for me was the people who weren't Christians weren't going to heaven, and probably if you weren't the right type of Christian, you weren't going to heaven either. Uh, I just couldn't understand how uh, God, that was supposed to be good, compassionate, fair, could let this happen, let all these people go to hell. So basically this conflict caused me to be turned off by religion, and I just ignored it. I basically, as I said, became agnostic. I thought the intent of organized religion was good for most people, but not for me. I, I kind of characterized those people and looked down on them as being weaker than myself. In a sense, I was becoming self-willed one ride at this time. I was becoming my own higher power, and as we all know, when you become your own higher power, you can rationalize anything. In college, I continued to study some religion and tried to understand it a little better. I just couldn't come to, I couldn't resolve in my mind why wars could be fought, people died over religious concepts. If you didn't believe in a specific religious God, why wars could be fought and people could be killed? Why God would let this happen? There was only one right God by most religions. It was about this time my uh, usage began to escalate, and I'll try not to talk too much about it, but I probably will. Up until this time, I was a, basically a weekend drinker. Uh, but I found out retrospectively that I was always in a relief, already in a relief phase. I began having significant consequences, which I won't bore you with, and I also began taking amphetamines purportedly to help me study. I was using the common rationalizations at that time. I only drink on the weekends. I don't have to drink. I only take the speed to study. It makes me more functional. All the things that we hear about. During my sec first year of medical school, I started smoking marijuana, uh, presumably to help me relax from the stress. In the third year, I began to take some benzos because of stress and anxiety, and I also used started using cocaine for the times that I needed to shorter-term lift. And I just didn't feel good enough. In my internship, I began using marks primarily, uh, primarily for hangovers, but more truthfully, probably just when I just didn't feel good enough. Uh, in my early years of practice, because I couldn't sleep now, I, uh, because I was taking four black beauties a day, I began taking uh, the sleeping pills. Uh, Now looking back, at this time my life was uh, completely out of control. The only thing that appeared normal to me uh, and to most people was my medical practice. I was very successful in medical school, graduate training, and my professional career. I became board certified in emergency medical medicine, developed a city, county, regional EMS plan, a helicopter service, and became the director of a large metropolitan ED. I worked harder and harder, looked increasingly more successful, but the usage continued, my usage continued to escalate. I became increasingly more unhappy, spiritually and emotionally bankrupt. Basically, I, as we, a lot of us that I hear in the stories, I had the respect of the medical community, but I hated myself. Just for the sake of completeness, besides my drug addiction, I, I used, used women like medication. They would temporarily make me feel better. Uh, as, as we all know, this was short-lived, and I couldn't form any meaningful relationships. I was a compulsive gambler, and I carried at least two loaded weapons with me at all times. I won't, you know, 
you know. <laughs> the problem was I couldn't figure out a way to quit using. I tended to say, well, after I reach a certain goal, I'll quit. I'll quit after medical school. I'll quit after internship. I'll quit after residency. Uh, on and on and on. I'll quit after my boards. But instead of quitting, I continue to accelerate. Towards the end of uh, my using career, I just kind of figured, well, there's no way I can quit. I'm just going to die an addict. Because I couldn't quit, because if I quit, I couldn't practice medicine. And if I couldn't work, then I might as well die, because all my self-esteem was based on my career and my profession. At the end of my using career, I was using about four or five black beauties a day, taking at least ten Percodan, at least five ten milligram Valium, four or five Halcyon, ten Placidil, drinking a fifth of alcohol, but I drank Ram one year, that high-class stuff. And this is just what I used to survive and function on a daily basis. It didn't account for what I would do when I went out to party when I wasn't working, when I would ingest, snort, smoke, or inject much more. Just to get up in the morning, I would set a bunch of alarm clocks. If I heard them, I'd take two black beauties, a Percodine, drink four ounces of Grand Marnier, set an alarm clock for about an hour later, and try to wake up. Sometimes I was successful, sometimes I wasn't. I was quite often late for work, as you can imagine, but I would compensate irrationalize by staying much later, seeing the most patients, and doing the most, most administrative work. During work, I had to take benzos because I couldn't have alcohol in my breath, and if I didn't have alcohol in my breath, I would have a seizure. Since I could not figure out a way to quit on my own, I got some unexpected and unwanted help. One evening while I was at home, a group of people showed up. I didn't know who they were initially, but it was a task force, a drug task force, composed of FBI agents, DEA agents, IRS agents, state police, local police. They wanted all my medical records, and they also wanted to search my house. I couldn't imagine for sure what they wanted, but I was starting to get the idea. <clears throat> Basically, they told me that I was, my prescribing habits were so bad, and I was using so much drugs that they thought I was selling them. But after a lengthy investigation, they determined I was just diverting them for my use. I was still facing many hundreds of years in jail, millions of dollars in fines, property forfeitures, the usual license and consequences, and worst of all, the public, public humiliation. I was to be a media star, a TV star that I, I really hadn't hoped to be. Essentially, at this time, this is my bottom. Uh, now I knew I, had some, I was going to have trouble supplying my drugs. I knew I'd probably have to quit, because not because I wanted to, but if I didn't lose my license, they'd at least be scrutinizing my prescribing practices. Uh, I knew that I couldn't function with just alcohol alone. Now I was drinking about the equivalent of two, at least two-fifths a day, and I couldn't stop because of the withdrawal symptoms. I could not, not continue to work this I couldn't continue to work drinking, so I had to figure out what to do, and I thought, well, maybe I have a problem. I need to go to the best place in the world, some big, reputable place. Uh, so I thought the Mayo Clinic sounded good, especially since I only know, knew a couple people, and it was fairly far away from my home. Uh, I called the work and told them I was sick going to the Mayo Clinic, but I didn't tell them what was wrong with me because I was just too embarrassed. By the way, you don't call people and tell them you're sick and going to the Mayo Clinic. They all think you have cancer or something terrible like that. Anyway, at the Mayo Clinic, I went through a detoxification in the obligatory 28-day program. Essentially, I was cleaned up and, most importantly, introduced to AA. The idea of AA was okay with me because I, knew from my, because I knew from my training it was the only thing that really worked. 
didn't know much about it other than it was a program of complete abstinence, which I didn't think was possible for me. I couldn't breathe without drugs or alcohol, but I, I made a commitment that I was going to give it 100%. Uh, I was going to show up, hang in, listen, and do exactly what they told me. The first meeting I went to was at a place called Guest House in Rochester, Minnesota. It was a treatment center for uh, Catholic priests that had problems with alcohol and drugs. I didn't know that, but that's what it turned out to be. The first lead I heard was a priest who could not stop drinking and was having trouble with faith, spirituality, and he said he forgot how to pray. This helped me immensely because I thought if it could happen to a Catholic priest, possibly, maybe, it just might be able to, might could have happened to me. I went from that point on, I went to a lot of meetings, and the first thing I noticed, even as sick as I was, at the beginning of every meeting, they read the 12 steps. And even as sick as I was, I knew that the 12 steps were the key. I had no problems with the first step. I knew I was an addict and an alcoholic. The second step was my most difficult step, primarily because of the conflicts and incongruities that I had with relig the religion had presented to me in my earlier years. I started reading the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, every other really Eastern, Western book I could get a hold of, listening to religious tapes, um, reading all the other literature, talking about the second step, but I continued to have difficulty. Finally, I used that as, as my higher power to restore me to sanity, and uh, something that simple, it took me about eight months to get, but I was tough. And the first thing I had to come to terms with it is that I wasn't the higher power, it wasn't me. And the concept of faking it until I make it, incidentally, I hated those slogans when I first came here, and I love them. I began praying on my knees briefly in the morning, asking for help, in the evening, on my knees, thanking the great spiritual force of the universe for keeping me clean and sober that day. I just tried to do the right thing, living my life with the good order of directions the AA program taught me, and I heard about in meetings, and leave the results fall where they may. Basically, thy will be done. I then realized that I had taken the third step, and it was God as I understand him, which I don't completely understand, but... And I came to believe at that time that most religions were different ways to get to the great spiritual force of God in the universe. Again, glory direction and doing the right things and letting the laws of the universe and the laws of nature do the rest. I rapidly, not rapidly, but fairly rapidly progressed through the rest of the steps. And I, I kind of think that the 12 steps sums it all up when it says having had a spiritual awakening. Uh, it's the spiritual awakening uh, that's important. It's, it doesn't say that we get completely spiritual overnight. Uh, it's a growth process. It's progress, not perfection. The main thing I know today is that I'm not the higher power. He, she, or they, or it is manifested by AA principles, people, AA meetings, the laws of mathematics and nature, the teachings of all good religions, just doing what my conscience tells me is right and leaving the results to God. Now, after 11 years, I'm reaping all the benefits I hear about in, in this room so often. I live life on life's terms. I have a wife, a four-year-old child. I'm not the richest person in the world, but I practice medicine on a much more spiritual level. And the money that I need comes. Today, I don't try to think myself into good acting anymore. I try to act myself into good thinking. I don't see life so much as a problem to be solved, but more of a mystery to be lived. And for this, I thank you people in this program. Thank you.
ഇതായി 